Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 170, recorded on March 1st of 2023, the Photo Geekery Show, where I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and I get together with a guest host on a weekly basis to discuss the week's news and theories and philosophies and technologies that we are facing as photographers. And with me this week is none other than the amazing Chris Marquardt, who I'm delighted I can call a friend and a colleague, and thanks for being on the show again, Chris. I'm so happy to be the guest geek for this week. It's awesome to be back. Well, and I, I, I love when you're on because your perspective comes from so many different angles. And yes, you can, you can talk about the technology that goes into our cameras better than anybody. But I think that you can also talk on the philosophy side and, uh, and a lot of the theories and techniques as best as anybody out there as well. So I found some stories that I think will be uh, easy for both of us to have a wonderful discussion on. But before we get into those stories, what have you been up to? It's been forever <laughs> since we've talked last. <laughs> well, same as you, I had a, a while of no tips from the top floor. Um, the podcast was kind of silent for yeah over a year, I think. So at least mostly. Um, what am I up to? I'm, I'm starting... The workshops back up, the tours back up uh, in a bit of a different, uh, different context than before the pandemic because it's over, right? The pandemic is over, right? Right. Uh, so some people say uh, totally right. <laughs> okay, so um, we've had the, our yearly uh, Abbey workshop in the south of Germany throughout the pandemic, so it was uh, one of those things where we're really careful. Um, and now I'm starting back up some smaller in-person workshops here in the viewfinder villa um, where we have done, done that before um, mostly film photography workshops so there will be two in summer um, and then for fall i'm trying something new that is that's, that's getting some inter some good reception and that is the eastern european electric road trip so so i think we were talking about this before uh, at some point and you're coming as far as romania you're not getting down to me though but you unfortunately are going to be relatively not close. <laughs> it, it would be another uh, day's drive to get down to you and so what we're doing is with a very small group in a tesla model 3 we are driving from berlin through um through austria vienna prague in czechia um budapest in hungary up to uh, down to down to uh, south southeast to uh, romania to transylvania so small group flexible group um will be zipping along in a silent car we'll have uh We'll have stops like like we'll we'll arrive at the at the next stop in the afternoon. So we'll have the afternoon and the evening to photograph maybe the night or part of the night, and then next morning up early, um, some morning lights, some uh, additional locations, and then through the middle of the day we'll be driving for one and a half, two and a half. I think one leg is about four hours, but that's really the longest one um, to the next stop, and then. It starts over, so it's it's a bit like a cruise. You get to see a lot of places in Eastern Europe, a lot of history, a lot of um, beautiful cities, and then in Transylvania, it's it's beautiful landscapes and uh, of course castles and these kind of things. And it would be interesting if uh, if I'm not doing anything that day, you find yourself in Transylvania. I might take a road trip and crash your party. 
Oh, um, that, if you, that would be if, awesome. If you can't come I, the, the, the day's drive south, I can go a day's drive north. Who knows? Uh, I might be I've, crazy enough to do that. I've done the tour in uh, in summer on my own. I did a scouting tour. Um, the entire thing, almost the entire thing, I left out part of Germany because I know that already. Um, just to see what's there and to see how the driving goes. It's a, it's a proof of concept, first of all, to be able to do all this in an electric car. Um, th- and it worked just fine. It worked perfectly. No problems with the charging. Uh, no problems with... It didn't even add too much of uh, driving duration. And you want to take a stop every now and then anyway. So it ended up being like, yeah, easy, fun, good. And uh, and I'm I'm the thinking about doing something similar, um, Chris. You know, in in Bulgaria, it's um, seven mountain ranges and a coastline, and with those mountains, oh, you get yeah. caves and waterfalls and the beautiful scenic um, you know, views from the top of the Balkans. And um, I'm thinking 2024, I might be Perfect. doing a workshop as well. That uh, this year will be the scouting year. And I've already been to some of the locations, but sort of like you, you've got to figure out the timing and the logistics and you got to understand where sure. you're going to be stopping along the way and you don't want to give any of that to chance. So the way I'm figuring it in my head is a day of macro photography here at home base near Varna, Bulgaria, and then a week or so of touring the country, followed by another day at home base where we can unwind and, and we're close enough to where the airport is. So that's a, it's an idea that's running around in my head. If any of the listeners are interested in that, drop me a line and I can put you on a, uh, a wait list for that. But none of it is certain right now. I don't even know how much the thing is going to cost until I start crunching the numbers. But um, I'm, I'm glad at least to be able to be thinking about that. I'm doing online workshops still, and that's a lot of fun, but I do miss the in-person connection. Um, that I think oh yeah, that do, is. But yeah, and and you know with and you know with with the with the technology landscape changing right now with AI coming in and so on the the actual experience there in person that kind of stuff is becoming more and more important and and more and more desired. I see this. Um, I've sold five out of no wait four out of six seats, so there are two left open right now. Um, but those were. Those were pretty much sold instantly. So people want that that live experience. People want uh, the thing they can't get virtually right now. So right, yeah. Well, and at least virtually, we can have great conversations about photography, like oh, the yeah. one that we're about to have. Uh, so let's let's get into the stories here. Um, from F Stoppers, uh, from uh, Ilya Ovchar wrote this article. Um, kind of a clickbaity title. Five Worrying (laughs) Trends in Photography. Uh, And if you've read this, this, most of these points could have been written in, I don't know, 1980s, uh, aside from the social media uh, commentary, or it could have been written, you know, 10 years from now. Uh, It does sort of come off a little bit curmudgeonly, you know, get off my lawn, you you youngins that don't know how to handle things properly, but also from a perspective of somebody that is going through it. And I think we all go through a lot of these. Um, And I just want to touch base on these trends, but also anything that you've seen in the industry at large um, that is worrying or positive, where are things going? And this is our springboard to that discussion. So Uh, Ilya says the five points here are basically reliance on post-production, lack of originality, overuse of social media, disregard for ethics, and underrepresentation. Which one of these stood out the most for you, Chris? So uh, post-production, 
reliance on phosphorus that this is a necessity and it's always been that way um yeah yeah so what would ansel adams there's say nothing special you know there's nothing special exactly <laughs> exactly what would ansel adams say nothing uh worrying about that lack of originality if you if you look at certain landmarks that are only known from a certain perspective and there are much better photos from other perspectives that are pretty much ignored because that's the look of the thing. Um, yeah, so uh, Horseshoe Bend, right? Uh, if I example. say that, you can picture, uh, yeah, you could picture exactly that location. Uh, the uh, the firefall in Yosemite, right? Yes, you can picture that in your mind exactly what that looks like because there's going to be. A hundred or more photographers there when the conditions are right, stepping over each other, knocking into each other's tripods in order to yes. get the functionally identical image. Yes, and and of course you have you have certain points of certain spots are just the ones that are easiest to reach, but then there are others that are easily photographed from different perspectives that are as exciting or maybe even more exciting. But something once in the past established established that one perspective as the default, as the one that you want to see that from. And that's what everyone does. Uh, and Instagram doesn't help <laughs> in that respect. No, no, you always... <laughs> I, this is one of the reasons why I'm not a huge fan of landscape photography, because um, so much of it has been already done. And as I you see a lot towards. of tropes that come back and back and back, yes. Exactly. Uh, and with my work in macro photography, even if I give you know students in a workshop the exact same ingredients to play with, they're all going to come up with something different. And there's an inherent uniqueness to the creative process because you as a creative are imparting that inventiveness and creativity into the subject itself. And there, therein lies the originality. So uh, I think that it's not hard to be original. You just have to, you have to think. You can't just be a lemming and, and follow after everybody else and do exactly the same thing. And, and I would agree, though, that a lot of photographers do that. And um, is that and a bad thing? I think that's always been the case. I mean, when you got a, a disposable camera on vacation and you went to the Eiffel Tower, are you going to take a picture of the thing? Of course you are. That, I, th I think it comes down to what that what the purpose of that photo is. Is it something to create a memory? Then yeah, sure, go for it. Uh, is it to create something that will sell as art or will get everyone excited and give you all the likes they can? Then yeah, no. Um, I've 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 long ago decided to not play some of those online games, um, and it has nothing to do with originality. It's more like. Uh, I don't feel like I want to do that. Go go that way, that hustle, um, which ah, it certainly turns into. That kind of goes into the next point: that the hustle that is social media. Um, <laughs> and you know, th this was to me a bit eye opening because everybody's going to see this from a different perspective. I've got uh, large followings on Facebook and Instagram. They specifically mention Instagram and maybe spend less time there. I post my images there and I interact with people and I see work that's been shared on there and it can often inspire me, um, but it can also be very toxic. And thankfully, with the audience that I've cultivated, I rarely see that, but I do hear a lot of that from others. There has to be a purpose to those platforms. Uh, is it building an audience and does that audience mean anything to you as it comes to, as a professional, can you monetize that audience, right? Can you, you know, share your images and get people to sign up for workshops like we were talking about or sell them a, a print or for licensing and things? 
I've I've actually had uh, a number of people discover my work on social media that ended up becoming very big licensing deals. Uh, one that is about to become a U.S. postage stamp, an image awesome. of a Madagascan sunset moth wing uh, up close. And so that was discovered via the social media presence that I have. And so there's value in that. But is there an overuse of that? Because everything has to be in balance. And I often spend way too much time in front of the computer and less time in front of the camera as it is. Well, it's a question for what 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 your own point, at, at what point are you? Is this more of a business opportunity than, yeah, sure, I think it makes sense. If Is it is it your private photography? And Instagram being so toxic, um, de destroying self-worth of a lot of people or the feeling of self-worth and so on, uh, I just don't feel like <clears throat> that that I don't want to, I feel like I don't want to interact with that on that level and only showing the glowing beauty of my life and the excitement that I have every day, which the I, of course, do, right? Is <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. So, yeah. But but then Instagram being toxic, try TikTok. Um, oh, God. I've, I've refused <laughs> to get a TikTok account. And uh, eventually, I'll be that old man that just is living on the social media platforms that nobody has used in decades. But that's the only place where I feel comfortable, I think. I find But, social media being bad for my soul in some cases. And yeah. so uh, I use them. Yes, I do. Of course, I use social media. But I'm more and more conscious about how I use them. And um, I've learned to be able to turn these things off if I... If it feels like it. You know, my, my, my favorite is, is Flickr, um, partly because it treats images very well. And I don't have the biggest audience there, but it's, it's photographers looking at other photographers' work for the most part. And so there's, there's a, a gateway that is, uh, you know, it's, it's going to get all of the people that have anger issues and want to post online. They're not going to go to a photo-centric community specifically. And so there's less of that toxicity, I think, on, on that platform. So choose your battles, folks, I suppose. Um, but it is, uh, it's a part of the game we have to play. Now, the next two, I think, were the most interesting points uh, uh, in terms of trends. And I think that it's, it's a constant thing, uh, you know, like, like a treadmill or a trend mill, if I will, uh, that this is a constant rolling target, uh, disregard for ethics. And the talk in this particular point is that, um, you know, would you photograph somebody who's homeless on the street? And is that ethical or is it unethical. Uh, and street photographers have, I think, largely majority have agreed that yes, you don't photograph somebody that is uh, disadvantaged down on their luck uh, and, and take advantage of them further with your work. Uh, I see a lot of people doing that. When the refugees were coming from Ukraine uh, in February and March, there were uh, people taking pictures of, of the, the crowds of people getting off of buses and what have you. They might have been for news stories or what have you, but I didn't, I didn't take out my camera. I was there helping and delivering groceries and what have you. I wasn't going to participate within that. And there's an argument that, you know, photographing refugees and taking advantage of people in those scenarios could actually be against the Geneva Convention. Uh, so ethics, do you think we're on a downward spiral in terms of, of ethics? Or is it the same as it always was? Well, if you look at crisis photography, war photography, or stuff like that, th there's always two sides to that medal. One is the voyeurism that you that you um, 
yeah that that you that you help perpetuate the other side is of course the making people aware of things um so um but yeah. ethics in photography there's a good reason why i've not tried to become a photojournalist because you kind of to get the good shots you have to be a bit of a jerk to elbow yep. your way in front <laughs> of things um to stand in front of others to and that's not just that's not that's not my personality so no and and i do uh i do see photos that i go wow this is deep this is amazing this is but then i always having the experience that i have i always try to also envision how did this photo actually come to be what was the situation there did someone um, have to i don't know climb over wounded people i just just there's a lot of different and same by by the way goes for um for any photography it doesn't have to be crisis photography it could be a shot of a of a leopard uh, in in the desert and uh, you have to wonder is that did they did they hire that or was it really there naturally and so on or did it was uh, it placed yeah. from being, one being to the other spot your, your Ethic, ethical matter. photography there's an ethical exif initiative that has been around for years that tries to make people make photographers add ethical information to their photos so that the viewer can figure out if they actually want to endorse that so um is it getting worse that was your question mm. i mean just by the sheer increase in photography in general more and more people are into photography more and more people and there's less um, disciplined ethics therein right and and it's the same when, when every time something new comes along for people be it desktop publishing in the 90s or something um there will be a lot of bad output because a lot of people don't have a framework behind it that helps them decide is it a good or a bad thing. But then there were always bad apples, even before, yep, just to always. get the shot, you know. <laughs> well, and, you know, I've uh, I've seen some very um, remarkable images taken when people manipulate wildlife, like uh, uh, holding up uh, tree frogs on fishing line to make them stay in different silly poses and... You know, as, sim I, I as simple as that tiger photo in the wilderness where you Photoshop the leash out because that was there when, because it was from a zoo. <laughs> so, that, that stuff does happen. That is a reality. It does. But, you know, I've got in, in a in a formicarium right here on, on my desk, I've got a, uh, a queen ant of an Australian species, uh, the greenhead ant. And the greenhead ant uh, has an iridescent green uh, uh, kind of uh, carapace to it on the on the outside. It's beautiful. Sometimes it hits into some purple hues. And I had used ants that I had just found in my backyard or sometimes in my own house uh, to stage in certain images in the past. And I figured, well, you know, if I get my own ants, and I can call that a pet, right? I, I can that can now be considered pet photography if I'm raising an ant colony. Sure. And I could, uh, you know, create some stages of some sticks and water droplets, you know, coming up out of their enclosure that I can photograph in, in different ways. And I could have a lot of fun with that. Um, but I'm not going to uh, go out and, uh, you know, put a, you know, uh, insects in, in the freezer from out in the wilderness in order to slow them down. And I have done that once. And, uh, and I realized that that's not my style. I, I'm not, Didn't that feel I consider right, huh? to be. 
unethical on the on the other side of the line. So we all and draw that line has, differently, I suppose. Exactly. Everyone has to draw that line uh, in a way that works for them. Um, and yeah, everyone has their own like framework there to work within. So same with me. Now, what do you think? Yeah, well, I guess, yeah, we all frame our, our work around a certain set of values and, uh, you know, call them uh, ethics and, and interests and what have you. And, uh, and we stick with them. And, and sometimes it happens, it happens without you noticing. Just as a simple, a simple example, um, in Ethiopia, we were with a group shooting and I got a really good shot. And then later, another one in the group uh, tapped me on the shoulder and said, by the way, you just stepped right in front of my lens when that when you took that shot right. and I didn't get that shot for that reason, which I didn't even notice because I was so in the moment. So this, there, there are so many reasons why some things can happen. And of course, from that moment on, I explicitly told everyone, if I'm stepping in front of your lens, you are the paying clients here. You, you yeah, def definitely me. <laughs> tell me, tell me, kick my butt and get me out of the shot. Cause um, you go first. The, uh, the last comment, uh, the last uh, sort of, uh, trend, if you will, on uh, on this list here is underrepresentation, which I find interesting because uh, this plays into the idea of uh, photography stereotypes and uh, you know photographing the majority of what's out there and not uh, giving equity to uh, minority subjects. It could be the glamorous poses where everybody is uh, showing their. Um, you know, pretentious wealth on Instagram and what have you, but not representing other parts of their life equally. It could be, um, I I'm guilty of this. Uh, I only photograph beautiful snowflakes. I don't photograph the ugly ones. And so I am underrepresenting <laughs> the ugly snowflakes and that is inherently biased in the process. So slap the cuffs on me for that one. But <laughs> how about yourself? Well, when it, when it comes to different um, ethnicities and things, I mean, what do you expect from a ma massively white male-dominated field? Um, and I'm not excusing anything here. And uh, but but then you said, well, at least in most photography, you would set out to do a project to create art of a specific subject in a specific setting. If you're a landscape photographer, that's what you do. If you shoot snowflakes, that's what you do. If you shoot insects, that's what you do. Um, if you shoot a story about, I don't know, the Yakuza, then that's what you do. Um, and so under representation, do I have to represent everyone and everything in my, sh in my shots? Here, I'll give you an example, Chris. On your website, uh, Photo Sensei, which we'll we'll talk about in the break as well. There's a picture of a photographer in there wearing a red jacket. Why does everybody wear red jackets in these landscape images? Where's the blue jackets, Chris? Come on. Why, why is it always red? <laughs> now that you say it, I think, yeah, I did underrepresent blue and green jackets here in a big way and yellow ones. But I have a yellow button that might make up for it. So... <laughs> There you go. But uh, I, there is an honest reason for that. Red is not a common color in landscapes and the jacket will stand out and give color contrast against a blue sky or any other That's elements why it's within there. there. Yeah. And th there's reasons for it. Uh, but I am just pointing it out that there is an inherent bias to a lot of what we do. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing so long as it's not done in any particular type of malice. I'm with you there. All right. Um, 
into the tech stuff for the next story. Comes in two parts. First part from Petapixel. Uh, actually, it's an interview uh, originally spotted by uh, f- an interview from uh, Photo Trend, spotted by Photo Rumors, and I pulled up the article from Petapixel. Anyhow, the title is Panasonic to add phase detection to future cameras, including Micro Four Thirds, which I don't think is not phase. I said phase, didn't I? Yeah, it's it's my it's my German ears mishearing. <laughs> <laughs> it's not face detection. They've had that for a while, but phase detection, which is an entirely different way of focusing from the depth from defocus technology that has traditionally been in Panasonic cameras, which I'm not going to say is bad, but they had been lagging behind the industry up until the S5 II has hit the market. Do you think this is going to be uh, you know, a game changer for people looking to buy cameras that now puts Panasonic back in the running, especially if it's across all boards, including the Micro Four Thirds offering, or are people just going to stick with what they've got already? <sighs> That's a tough question because the, the older I get, the less I care about what technology is in a camera, the more I care <laughs> about the result I get with the camera. So whichever way they focus, if it's you fast enough both, for my, my photography, if it's if it's quick enough for what I need, um, if it, it helps me get the result, then so be it. I don't, yeah. Um, nice, nice. Phase detection is typically faster than contrast detection, but I've seen contrast detection that was plenty fast, good enough. So... Yeah, it means Those- that um, that all of the new cameras are going to have new sensors that uh, employ yep. this technology. So yep. you won't have a direct refresh of previous technology. And I know that uh, Panasonic has been working on an organic sensor technology for a long time. I believe they had shown some prototypes of that at one point. Uh, I think it was targeted towards some of their broadcast offerings, which are ridiculously expensive cameras. And that's done by a, a different internal unit at uh, Panasonic versus the uh, the Lumix people. But I think that this is, uh, if you read between the lines, they're saying that uh, there's going to be an announcement soon. Uh, it says, uh, I'll directly quote here, we will consider adding uh, phase detection autofocus to our cameras, depending on the model characteristics. So this that is key, because that might not mean it goes across the board. Some of the lower end offerings might not get it. And not only for full frame, uh, full frame cameras, but also for micro four thirds. And on this last point, I invite you to stay tuned for our next announcements. They don't say how soon that's going to be, but if they're teasing announcements, we can assume that it's going to be within a couple of months. I mean, is, so. is that something that that gets you excited if uh, there's a prospect of a certain camera brand getting phase detection autofocus? I, this doesn't tickle me at all. The the thing is, we have much bigger problems right now in the in the photo industry. If we, if we look at photography having been like, like completely commoditized with smartphones, um, like everyone does it, it's not that cool thing that only the cool kids do anymore and of course there is still that level this 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 um this part of photography that has the dedicated cameras and the large format uh, or the larger sensor cameras and the interchangeable lenses and that is still a cool factor and um the problem i see is that it's a huge mistake for the industry to concentrate like on more expensive higher end models which they do right now because that's They've where they can make up money too. The costs have been rising so, so th- this will raise the bar for entry because the lower level, the lower end models, and you just said that the face detection will not probably not be in lower end models. Um, they they don't get the cool toys, and that will not entice many people to go into that field of photography, like in 
air quotes, real photography. And uh, that will dry up the funnel for people to come in there and for their future sales. So I, I, th I see that as the biggest problem to, um, they, they should pick some really cool stuff and put that in entry-level cameras and that would get the kids interested and uh, keep keep the photography as we know it alive in the future. And well, I, I won't steal my stuff. thunder from our final story, but there's some fun to be had that could be added to cameras there. Wait for oh, yes. it, folks. Um, but, uh, what, what, okay, you mentioned smartphones taking uh, a large piece of the pie away from the traditional photography environment. If you call yourself a photographer, uh, you know, 30 years ago, you had to have a dedicated device specifically for that. But then, as smartphones became better and better, the compact camera market with uh, fixed lenses basically evaporated. There are still a few offerings therein, but the Micro Four Thirds market has been around for a while, and uh, Olympus has handed the torch over to OM Systems. Uh, Panasonic recently released, uh, released the GH6 last year, uh, and that has been you know widely applauded as a as a great camera uh, as it should be. So. Uh, it was interesting to see that Sigma, uh, piggybacking off the first story, talking about Micro Four Thirds, is done developing uh, lenses for that platform, as reported on by f-stoppers, at least for now. But is that really any surprise? The Micro Four Thirds platform has been around for a very long time. Every lens is offered by multiple manufacturers, and the real R&D money is probably going to go into lenses for the uh, RF mount and the Z mount and the L mount, which uh, Sigma is is a part of. And Sigma still hasn't put out their Foveon style sensor that they teased as soon as the new L mount alliance was established, what's four or five years ago? I still I don't see that from Sigma. So I, I'm not mad at Sigma for this. I want Sigma to put their R&D money in other places than than this platform that's already mature. A Foveon would think, be Chris? such a great place. I mean, and it's 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 incredibly hard to get a good Foveon sensor because of the, the way the technology works. But um me as a me as a film shooter hey i want i want film in digital and foveon is exactly that um full pixel full pixel count um every pixel has all the colors you don't have to do any interpolation bayer array demosaicing and that kind of stuff um that takes care of so many things if they get that right and if they pour enough heart and sweat and soul into it then um that will be one of those cool things one of those and Fovian has had a great promise but of course they lacked in high iso performance that kind of stuff but um yeah that that, that well, and it also lacked in the excited. lens offerings because you had yes, to use sigma's mount right and uh, that if you're not playing in the sigma uh you know playground and very few people were it was not enticing for you to even experiment with because you didn't have any lenses to uh to, to work with now sigma does offer now i believe a, a lens mount um uh, modification service because they've pretty much discontinued all support for that. And uh, they might even allow you to, say, take a, an L-mount lens and retrofit it to an RF mount or vice versa. It's a service that they offer. But, man, get me That's that a hurdle. That's frame. a hurdle. That's It's not yeah. easy, right? Yeah. <sighs> um, but the, the hurdles keep coming, Chris, because when we go into our next story, this is a, a philosophical, fundamental shift for the way that people uh, perceive images and the reality that they purport to project. 
Um, we've talked about AI enhanced uh, or AI generated images on some of the past episodes of this, but I think it's going to be one of those topics that is continuing to come up and again and again. So from Petapixel, they basically stated clearly, the fox is in the hen house. AI photos are beyond the point of no return. And they mentioned that uh, we talked about a photo that won a contest that was uh, AI generated on a previous episode. But now there's people that are posting portraits on Instagram and have been doing it for a long time. I think it was four months that one person was posting AI generated portraits, generating a huge audience on their Instagram account uh, using completely falsified imagery. This is not going to go away. This is going to continue. How is that going to affect photography and not just photographers? Because obviously, you know, you can't AI generate photos from your wedding. Uh, you can't uh, AI generate, you know, photos of uh, a photojournalistic event or something like that. Or maybe you could, but uh, unethically as it would be, there's always going to be a role for photographers. But how is that role changing and how is the perception of photography in the general world space going to be affected by this in the coming years? And it's moving very quickly, so it's hard to predict. 2023 is the year of AI. I mean, the, the, the pace is just getting faster and faster. And with, with new things in AI, like now the, the latest thing is called ControlNet, which allows you to have pose control and depth control. And you can control things. The, the, the whole prompt engineering field, it's, it's much less voodoo than it was just a few months ago. It's more, you can be very targeted. So uh, having a vision and getting that out into a virtual photo is now much closer. It's still in the nerd realm. You still need to work with special tools and things, but yeah, we're getting there. Um, the problem, I, as I see it, is not that things in photos are being faked. That has always been the case since the dawn of photography. Um, the problem is more that that's becoming easier to do for more people. And if we, if we look at the last, I don't know, 30 years, even though we could probably go back as far as you want, uh, there was always some form of disruption. In the 90s, the web came along and that disrupted everything publishing and so on then um, audio production moved from the big studios to the pcs um i've been part of that revolution uh in the 2000s and AI is there too now as well right oh AI yeah is sure getting in all industries yeah the audio it'll take a few more years but it's it's quickly getting there um in the 2000s the dslrs came along and they pretty much ate kodak's breakfast and film was disrupted um also the, the whole broadcast field was disrupted with podcasts in the 2000s um what else the web in 2010s like the whole e-commerce thing um pretty much brick and mortar isn't what it used to be um and now we're looking I, I it's a classic like it's, tale it's we're, not going to be used for good uh that's basically well, what i'm everything can be misused and used and i'm in the field of looking at this a bit more positively um all of these changes in the past meant the, a form of adaption right P people had to adapt um more or less now more because things are moving faster and it's not in our nature fast quick change is not in most people's nature um to to adapt to this so we'll we'll have to we'll have to learn to deal with it um and around all of these disruptions there were always 
groups that would declare the end of civilization. And <laughs> yeah, I don't not, think I'm not this... declaring that, but I think that if you could, uh, even using your own face as input, you can create AI versions of a superhero version of yourself. And sure. I think you can do that, that now. You can do that now. Uh, and if those types of images uh, start being shared on social media, representing your own reality, even though it's not, but already we have Instagram doing that. And so it just takes it a step further. But I think it, it could actually be somewhat beneficial in a way, because if I see the pretentious made up staged images of people living their everyday life, which is really not the way anybody ever lives, and I can see them as a superhero or something just silly that I know can't can't be real. It actually breaks down that wall, and I'm not trying to uh, achieve their level of Zen and success in life that they don't otherwise have either. It could it could break down that wall, break down that barrier for me, yeah. and just look at we this stuff and say, yes, people can have fun. People can pretend about their lives, and that it's not the way it actually is, and just make that enjoyable. I mean, what what we certainly, I mean, this this is this is of course the the Instagram issue times a million, right? The I'm showing you my beautiful life, and I have a, I don't know, I look perfect. I'm not overweight. I have all my hair and whatever. It's 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 it helps create fake realities. Um, but the knowledge of that, and that will seep into people's yeah people's reality that they, the, that they cannot trust photos anymore um so they will not trust photos anymore and then we'll have to establish new ways to make sure that the photo that we want people to trust is somehow declared as one that has a i don't know a cryptographic signature that that gives you the the knowledge that this is what was taken on the scene um i think we will have ways to counter that and the way to get there will be chaotic the way to get there, people will get it wrong, and it's like with every with every change comes. Look at desktop publishing. Kids, kids before the nineties will not know that desktop publishing was an expensive uh, thing. Publishing was expensive; it required expensive tools. There were gatekeepers, the publishers, um, and the newspapers, and they. Um, that, that that was democratized in the 90s, but it ended up in horrendous outputs because people were not educated in how to make a nice layout, what fonts to use, how to not mix them and so on. So we, ha we had a time where it was chaotic and now it's getting better because more and more people learn and become better. Um, I see the same thing in this whole AI um, story. It is for a while going to create a lot of chaos and yeah i mean any manuscript go back to normal that was uh any manuscript that was printed on a dot matrix printer with the spools uh and the sprockets on the side that was not good content that was not it's probably not anything that a regular publisher would ever touch and so yes again um media has been democratized in many different ways and the expertise 
to fake something is now as simple as writing a sentence. And that can also be faked by another AI technology if you can't write a good enough sentence. Uh, and people are using this to take advantage of others. You know, uh, From DIYphotography.net, I found uh, an article uh, specifically stating one case where scammers were using an AI image of fake earthquake victims to steal donations. And so that's happening right now from the, uh, the you know, victims in uh, Turkey and Syria I'm not sure how much they will have scammed, but that's immaterial to the fact that people are out there attempting to do that with, I think that image was made by Midjourney AI. And there are signs, at least right now at that generation of technology, people have more fingers than they should. Uh, and in I've, seen that, I've seen that photo you shared. It was, it was, it did not convince me the least. I saw this and I went no. instantly went to, oh, that's an AI photo. But of course, people, you're, it's you're a learning Chris process. Marquardt. <laughs> it's a learning, yes, and yes, I get, it is a learning process and we will learn. And then there might be other things as the photo. The photo is maybe not, it's going to be, it's going to have less weight in the future. And there will come other things that are uh, going to replace it in terms of um, this is reality, I'm showing you the truth, which with photos was never the case anyway. So, Well, of course, uh, yeah, a camera does not see the world the way that our eyes see the world. A camera sees everything at once. Our eyes see one thing in any given millisecond and we dart around and our vision uh, accumulates the view of what we have and then the view of what we have is not the same view as what we remember it, whether we remember it a minute later or a year later that gets uh, all confuddled with other memories of similar things because we are organic creatures and a camera is digital or at least a digital camera is. It's fundamentally different. Uh, so reality therein is subjective. And I think the goal has always been for photography to as closely mimic reality as possible. But now this is imagery, not photography. It's not being captured. Light isn't being captured. It's being uh, made from these neural nets that uh, I, I don't think it's going away. I think it's going to get better. Midjourney AI in the next couple of years is going to be three times, four times better than what it is right now. And it'll be harder to find that line. But and it'll I, be I faster. It, it'll go faster than people think. Yeah. Development uh, is going I, to be faster. I entered a photo contest recently and uh, I won a minor award. I didn't get first place in anything. But in order to confirm that the image was real, they requested that I send a raw file. And I did. And so that was a, a nice way for them to, to vet their uh, participants. You know, they're not going to give out an award to something that was an AI generation or that, uh, you know, I didn't take. And so I didn't have the original version of to illustrate that I had taken it. Uh, and, and I wish there would be some way for me to allow that uh, the, I guess, the proof of ownership with that raw file, the proof of genu uh, genuineness to be embedded in there. And you know, Canon and Nikon both tried to have uh, image authentication kits in the past that were hacked and became irrelevant uh, very shortly after. And I don't think that there's been an attempt at that uh, since. So we'll see. It'd be nice if we could have a program that created a, a key from the original raw file that you could associate with an edited image and understand that the two are linked and somehow give an appropriate fingerprint. But we need a there. blockchain. That's what we do. Oh, don't get me started <laughs> on blockchain. That's, let's, let's just continue. let that let, let's that let that dead horse rot, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's let's go on to our final story, which I, I thought this was so much fun. 
Uh, a while back, uh, this is reported on by Petapixel. A while back, Nikon showed a, a prototype firmware of their Z9 that had customizable shutter sounds. And I think the demo that they had given was like a cat meowing when you press the shutter button. And this is not uh, obviously the mechanical shutter button that can somehow be tweaked. It's going to be a, an electronic shutter sound, much like your phones would do. And get this. The Nikon Z9 selectable shutter sounds are actually coming, so says the head of this article, because the response was so positive from Nikon's little joke about being able to customize the sound of your shutter. And at first I thought, well, that's kind of gimmicky. And then I thought, what sounds could I possibly have my camera make? And then I realized that my camera, whenever I press the shutter button, can make the pew pew sounds from Star Wars. And now I want this. I want this in every camera uh, just to be silly and fun. And, you know, this also goes to the point of, okay, well, if you're going to innovate, this really isn't innovating much of anything, but it's still getting in the news. What do you think, Chris? Are they going to allow you to put your own sounds there or is it, are they, will they oh, have that would a, be dangerous. Will they have a sound uh, store where you can download like ringtones, camera sounds for sale? I mean, you know what I want? I want the I want a selection of exquisite fart sounds because yes, Teslas can do that. Why why not cameras? Just imagine. That imagine be... as a street photographer having a variety and always changing fart sound whenever you press the shutter button. Yes. The looks that you would get from passersby uh, as a result of that would make an entire series of work, I'm sure. Okay, so I, on, in all seriousness, I have, I have a very distinct op, uh, opinion on that. Um, <laughs> because because I, I, have, I have in the past often thought about the importance of the shutter sound. And, you know, especially newer cameras, mirrorless cameras, you can just turn them off and then it is a silent operation. And that might be cool in the, like in a church or in a, in a situation where you don't, where this would be distracting. But the shutter, the sound of a shutter, be it digital or real or mechanical, um, it it has it has a bit it's a bit of bit like an exclamation point. It gives a closure of of sorts at that moment. Um, for like a, for a model, it's the it's the relax now signal, and uh, for the non model, it's the you can now let your guard down signal. And I get the best people shots between the shots. Like I take take your guard down now signal. Um, if if you stop shooting and that gives people the permission to ah, relax and then you wait half a second and you take a few more shots without announcing them um, right. without doing a countdown or something that guarantees the most natural expressions um, it works with people who are not versed in front of a camera so uh, on the other end of the spectrum there's some photography that people do that where they grab stills from like an 8k video and then there's no pressing a shutter at all, and I've I've saw I've seen several interviews with models that went through that, and that said it does it just doesn't feel right. It's not there is never a moment where you can relax because you're always in that oh am I uh, uh, what's happening right now? And I firmly believe that the sound of a shutter is also an important tool in getting the shot. Like which shutter? It's, it's like you know it's like classical music versus heavy metal. Um, well, how about this, Chris, if you could, uh, if you could have control over this and who knows what Nikon's going to let you do, but if you have your favorite film camera 
And that shutter makes a specific sound. And you you can recognize that sound. Wouldn't it be fun if your Nikon Z9 or whatever camera that could customize this could make that same shutter sound? There's a nostalgia no. element there. No, Clear you wouldn't no. like that? Clear no. Because <laughs> just ima- imagine you're driving, you're driving one of those tiny Fiat 500s uh, in an EV version, and you put the, a Maserati engine in there and through a loudspeaker. There is such I, I, a I, huge that would be fun. I there's think that a huge would be disconnect. Briefly, no, <laughs> <laughs> there's such a huge. Di- your neighbors would probably punch your tires, uh, punch holes in your tires. So the the match between the camera, like like if you if you're shooting with a Pentax six seven or a Mamiya RB sixty seven, and you have this satisfying monumental clunk sound that goes together and that does something. And then some people will respond much better to like a delicate delicate tick of a Leica, you know? Different personalities, different cameras, different results. Um, So why can't I have that different personality on my digital camera? Because the digital camera is a digital camera and it doesn't, it's not, it's... Have you shot with a Mamiya RB667? It's a tank. I have not. It has to sound like a tank. (laughs) I have shot with a, um, what was it, a, uh, a 617 medium format camera. And that thing was just absolutely massive. Uh, and the shutter sound was very satisfying. You'd only get like three clicks a roll, but you know, would I, would I want to replicate that on my digital camera because I'm not going to carry that film camera around and it's not convenient for me. And I've left the film era behind and now I'm never going back there, but I still want the nostalgia. I think it should be allowed. Here, let let me give you one area where I think having sounds makes perfect sense. And that is when you're shooting kids or babies, or if you need to, I don't know, break the ice with someone. Yeah, get get a crazy frog or a fart sound or a burp or whatever um, to to get attention, to make people to make people let down their barriers. That is totally cool. Man, That's like a, a, tool, a, a kid photographer. Like if you're if you're photographing children and your camera starts making fart sounds, you oh, know that, the perfect. expressions you're gonna get out of that. That's gonna be perfect. phenomenal. I'm all for that. I'm all for that. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll see what uh, what comes of this. I don't think that this is going to be an industry uh, takeover of every camera going to have this feature, but it will be interesting to see how people utilize it and how freely people are allowed to utilize it in the uh, the coming people are long it takes that. for this to people will hack that. Well, if they could hack it, they could have already hacked it for any camera, right? Um, you know, if you had uh, an electronic uh, shutter on a 5D Mark II, then couldn't the people behind Magic Lantern have made it make fart sounds ever since then? I think that was a possibility. And now ask yourself why they haven't. Why is that not available? Because no one wants it. I don't know. I think that <laughs> if it was made available, people would have utilized it. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing cameras farting in the future. Uh, That rounds out the stories for this episode (laughs) of Photo Geek Weekly. And you can find the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. And you can find my friend Chris Marquardt in a number of places online. Where should people go to find you, your workshops, and to pick your brain? Um, ChrisMarquardt.com. Just my name, .com. All right. Uh, Chris, I I actually actually just redid the entire website a few months ago. Oh, nice. Uh, Everything's there. Your last name is hard to spell, but just go to the show notes and you'll find it. Yes. 
and uh, and then your workshops are there. Uh, you've got your photo sensei website there. where you can do uh, basically. This is where you do a, a live lesson with somebody, like a one-on-one type of personal video session, right? Yeah, people book me. It's a, it's not as much as a, as you'd think it is, but uh, every now and then someone books me for an hour or two to go through a specific kind of photography or to have a portfolio review or to learn more about workflow or like my my entire my I'll do an entire brain dump for you there. Um and you can book different length slots directly. One-on-one video session, nothing pre-recorded, just us on a video call like like you and I know right now. Right. So you can find Chris from all those places. I'll put the links there for you. Um, and of course, I mentioned that I've got some uh, workshops and, and what have you going on. The current one I've just started on uh, with Princeton Photo Workshop. Uh, we're in week two of four. That one is completely booked and it's already started, but there is going to be a new date for that. If you wanted to join the wait list, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And from there, the waitlist at Princeton Photo Workshop, they will email you a link, a hidden link. It's not available right now to see a, I think it's in April and May, the next dates. And we're going to see if we can fill that up just by sort of uh, whispers and word of mouth. It's already half filled. So if you want to jump in on that one, it's doubtful that it will get completely filled. So there's going to be more one-on-one time during that course as well. Okay. Picks of the week. Let's get into this. Uh, Chris, yours is a rather unique pick compared to all of the picks that anybody could have presented to me. What is it? This is giving me such a kick. So there's, there's, um, it's, it's a video by Vox. Um, they have a series of little photography uh, adjacent things. And this is about a collector who collects postcards, like old postcards, goes to garage sales and picks them up and sorts them and organizes them. And uh, at one point he found out that uh, quite a lot of these postcards share the same sky. How like old the exact- are these? Of course, th- this, is, well, this is not modern digital era stuff, right? No, they are they are they are postcards from like the I don't know forties, fifties, sixties, seventies kind of like like if you if you're at a, at an attraction somewhere, a landmark, a hotel, they, they might have postcards there, and of course, um, uh, uh, there are and and what he found is that they they share the same clouds, sometimes mirrored, sometimes not, but it's the same cloud, and this is a bit of a detective story. It's like wh- why on earth is that the case? So they talk to a photo historian. I'm not going to give away the secret, but um it was a short like ten minute video, and I've thoroughly enjoyed that because it's it has everything I, I enjoyed it suspends it when, mystery when you, and yeah <laughs> when you sent me the notes yesterday, I'm like, okay, I gotta just whatever I was doing, just forget about that let's. Chris is choosing a video for a pick of the week. I must see what this is. And it was well worth the watch. (laughs) So I encourage everybody to go and take a look at that. And mine is almost as expensive. If Chris is free, then mine might cost you a dollar or two. Um, I've been doing some experimenting uh, with, I've done a lot of work with water droplets and refractions and things like that over the years. But I discovered that you can get these little, they're called water pearls or water beads. They're uh, by, there's no brand or anything. I'll put a link in the show notes, a a kit on Amazon that'll give you thousands of them. And this, when you add them into water, these tiny little beads, slightly larger than a grain of sand, uh, will absorb the water and become to the size of a small marble. 
but they'll be completely transparent because they are effectively mostly water, aside from the gel structure that's holding them together. So they have the same refractive index as water, but they're completely spherical and they're like tiny little crystal balls. And they work great for refracting light through them, just like a crystal ball would. Are they seamless or do you see like a production seam of sort? You don't see a production seam at all. Awesome. Awesome. Yep. Um, are they and, so, and are they are they hollow? Like is is the water inside and if you squeeze them they pop or is that just the they, whole structure they don't pop. is like a I, I actually had some they, they've uh, dried up here at least the ones that I had. You can squeeze and you can squeeze them real hard and they just bounce back to, to where they were. All if right. You squeeze so squeeze them a, like with a, like Herculean strength, they will break apart, but they, they will sticky? take a beating. Are they sticky? Nope, they're not sticky at all. Uh, awesome. I need to get those. That sounds cool. Yeah. It's a, and you know you can uh, I haven't tried this but uh, I, I was going to try to fill some up with some food coloring and so then you would have colored little crystal balls which I think could impart some creativity into the process. Um, I was actually wondering if they would soak up invisible ink and then I could have one fluorescing. You can buy them in color. Cool. You can buy them in you, different. You can colors. buy them already colored. Yes, I um, just look at them here. But I I had another idea that I was uh, toying with. I, I had tried in, in part of my uh, support for Ukraine series. Uh, I've, I haven't been successful with this idea yet, but I've been trying to put a fluorescing blue diamond inside of a water droplet. And that droplet refracts an image of a yellow flower in behind playing on that blue and yellow theme. And using tweezers, I'm able to get that diamond inside the droplet. But I learned very quickly that the surface tension properties of water don't just apply to the outside, but also the inside. And so that diamond was always jumping and sticking to the inner uh, water air boundary and not staying properly in the middle. But with these little water pearls, I've tried, I can penetrate them with these tweezers and I can inject a diamond inside of it and that's going to be one of my next uh, one of my next projects so uh, the mad scientist at work but those little water pearls just a couple of bucks for a bag uh, that you know th you can buy thousands of them because they, they make them for centerpieces at weddings uh, that just kind of fill in with uh, you fill a vase with these things and they'll 20, twenty thousand beats 10 euros yeah. 20,000. Yeah, I think you don't need that many, Chris. 50,000, <laughs> 12 euros. Okay, this is, yeah, this is amazing. I need to play with those. <laughs> yeah, and I, I could even imagine uh, playing around with one of them that's perfectly spherical and then I'm like dropping it into water and I'm splashing water around it, but then that neon stays green. spherical. Neon green. I see neon green ones. <laughs> water pearls, folks. That's on the, that's on the to buy list. Yep, get, a, totally. uh, get experimental, get creative and inventive. That's just what we're all about here. And that's the pick of the week for me. All right, Chris, thank you for being on this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Uh, I hope that at some point in the future, I might be on Tips from the Top Floor again. It'd be great to reconnect with you there oh, as well. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. All right. And thanks, and thanks for everybody. having me. Oh, well, you're welcome. You are welcome anytime. <laughs> uh, and thanks to everybody for listening to this episode 170. I'm glad we're back on the air. If you have any suggestions for stories or guests, please let me know. Commentary or discussion about what we've already talked about on this episode is welcome. 
I did get a number of uh, ideas from people looking to help me find a pink camera for my daughter's birthday. So thanks to everybody who had submitted some suggestions to that. The front runner is still the Nikon uh, Series 1 J2 because it comes with a pink kit lens. And I think to a seven-year-old girl, that's going to matter. So we'll <laughs> we'll see how I make out on that front. Still welcome to suggestions because that's not until June. But everybody, thanks for listening. Now it's time to get out and shoot.